Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Adam Oki is an attorney in Albuquerque, New Mexico, whose firm offers services in criminal defense, personal injury, and family law. He was featured in the episode of Albuquerque's Most Hated, which is on season two of Vice TV's I Was a Teenage Felon. Uh, He's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and a former professional mixed martial arts fighter. Before that, he grew up in Albuquerque's infamously rough South Valley, and if you crossed paths with him, or even worse, crossed him, he probably kicked your ass. Adam Oki, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate that. Did I miss anything big or important in my intro? No, not. I mean, you know, you you got a lot of it. You know, I've done a lot of things. I got my family and all that stuff. No, man, but you you captured most of it. <laughs> you know, one one of the things, and I've mentioned this to the guests before. One of the things that makes it incredibly easy to interview somebody is when they've already been on a podcast, or in your case, already been on a television show. And um, yeah, yeah. what what I find is with people who've already been on podcasts, at least, um, I know what questions have been asked and how they've been answered. And, and sometimes if you didn't answer it in full or if there wasn't some, you know, if I had another question that the host didn't follow up on, those are the kind of things I look at. Yeah, and, you know, most importantly, uh, I know we got all this stuff. Most importantly, you're a father of, of I have five kids, right? Yeah, that's, that's right, man. I'm married and have five kids all between the ages of uh, eight and 14. Oh, Jesus. And you're only a couple of years younger than me. You know, I'm 40. I just turned 49 in January, and i got a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. So I, oh, nice. Nice. I, I keep trying to tell myself what I, what I lack in patience I make up for in wisdom. There you go. That's a good, uh, that's a good exchange right there. And uh, I can only understand what the patience thing, too, with the kids. That's something i got to work on in a, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I also used to tell myself, I mean, you know what I do for a living. I spent five years on the DWI unit. You know, here in New Mexico, that would keep a guy kind of busy. Um, 12, 1,300 DWIs. And, and believe it or not, and, and, and I'm sure you believe this, most are actually pretty well behaved. But I always told myself after dealing with drunks for all those years before having kids, I've got the patience of a saint and this shouldn't be a problem. And that was a lie because um, I'll take drunks over my kids any day. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, your office is pretty close to downtown, uh, which makes sense in that most lawyers' offices are close to where the courthouses are. Um, you're also just a few blocks from uh, Martinez Town, which I understand is a historically rough place and not too far from where you grew up, right? Yeah, that's just right down the street, actually. Yeah, and, you know, I actually had never heard of that because I hadn't spent a ton of time in, in Albuquerque except for, you know, going up there to do work stuff. But uh, my season yeah. one guest, Danny G., uh, former pro wrestlers from there, and I, I believe you guys might even know each other. Yeah, you know what? I actually never met him in person, but I do know him, and we've talked to each other a few times on social media and planned to actually meet up. I never actually got a chance to meet up with him, but yeah, I, I kind of follow him, and I'm definitely a fan, and I see he's really doing some big things and kind of promoting New Mexico and, you know, kind of promoting uh, the culture and stuff, so... You guys yeah, have a, I do know him and, and appreciate what he's out there doing. You guys both have very similar beginnings and have both kind of ended up in good places. Uh, you know, it's funny. You and I, the world's not, when you, you realize the world really isn't that big of a place, and especially New Mexico. And I think you and I actually know quite a few of the same folks, given my involvement uh, with the New Mexico Athletic Commission. You're, having, you're being from Albuquerque and have literally grown up in that city's combat sports community. Um, I know there's a lot of overlap. Uh, I just uh, was talking to our executive director, who I think you know pretty well. Um, I was telling him I was going to interview you. 
Um, I'm actually wondering, how were you discovered and cast for I Was a Teenage Felon? Did you have to think twice about being on the show? or? Um, I got a, I actually got a random call like one day from one of the producers, and she was, uh, was kind of tasked to kind of finding, um, finding people for that particular show, I Was a Teenage Felon, and she was just looking on the Internet. She was from, uh, if I recall, Pennsylvania. And she was just looking on the internet searching and she found me and, you know, because I advertised with my phone number, she was able to contact me and talk to me. And, uh, I thought about it a little bit, you know, I thought about maybe not doing it cause it might, she had a, a bad light. Like I, I wanted to know how they would like, you know, put an end to my story, but I decided to do it and just figured the truth would come out. And, but yeah, they just found me randomly kind of interesting. You know, I so I watched that episode, obviously, I've seen it a few times, and um, I, th- at some point they show kind of how, you know, you're just basically sitting on a couch in this, looks almost like a warehousey type room, and they, they put a little put a little rug out, and they put the, the, the couch or the sofa on it, you sit there and you talk, uh, almost like being in, in what they would call the confessional in a lot of these, you know, the real world, a lot of these other uh, reality shows, and actually something really struck me about you, and actually kind of going back to Danny G, you know, Danny said, you know, in professional wrestling, people have characters, and they, and they play a character and, or a gimmick, if you will. And he said, you know, I'm not being a gimmick, I'm just being me. It's a little bit blown up, but, you know, this is who I am. And I couldn't help but get that feeling. Um, when I was watching you, you know, you're a pretty animated guy. Um, you've got the cool, like that beard that you kind of shave into a little point, you know, at the bottom of your chin, uh, you got your sleeve tattoos and, uh, you know, you, you, what's the word I'm looking for? You got a lot, there's an, there's an energy about you, uh, and an edge and you're obviously you're very, uh, you know, confident, borderline cocky. Um, there's a charisma though. And, but you weren't acting, you were being you. And I was actually kind of wondering, have you been approached since this show about actually doing any acting? Cause I could totally see that. No, I haven't been approached about doing acting, but I would love to do that. That'd be amazing if I could get into acting because I've always I did acting in college and I've done some extra work and I thought I was really cool before I, you know, was an attorney. But I actually was approached by a Hollywood producer uh, or a writer, not a producer, a writer, and I went out to uh, Venice last year and talked to him about doing my life story. So. You know, we're in the talks about him writing my life story and kind of getting that role and kind of doing a uh, doing a movie and trying to pitch it to Netflix or something. But I I was approached by a company out of Austin recently as well, and they want to do a uh, and I don't even think they had saw the Vice, but they follow me on social media and my social media kind of picked up a lot of uh, a lot of followers over the last few years, and they want to do a, a reality show about my law firm, so. We're in the makes of that, and we're trying to pitch the reality story. Uh, the reality uh, story, are you know, the law firm pitch, they're pitching it to uh, multi uh, multiple stations right now. So we're seeing if it gets picked up. So no, nothing about acting, but that would be actually really cool. So that's really interesting. You bring that up because what I was thinking is, and again, you're you know, you're a few years younger than me. You're old enough to remember Brian Bosworth, um, and he, I think he did some like action movie type 
type stuff. And of course, it I didn't. It didn't Bosworth. take off. But I think your persona and your look. It, I was thinking that kind of thing. And 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 as you were describing this to me about being approached, and and I thought, man, you know, the whole the whole Albuquerque, you know, lawyer straddling those worlds things kind of already been done with Better Call Saul. But it looks like these people have kind of take it to the next step and and doing a reality show. That's actually really cool. But you know, you spoke at length on the Vice TV show about having to fight a lot growing up where you uh, growing up where you did, uh, as did the DA Mark uh, who prosecuted you, um, and in a way, he kind of gave uh, he gave you oh, your way to turn your life around. Now, you sp- also spoke freely about never backing down from a fight, um, doing a lot of street fighting, and having that as your way of life. Do you think you were more prone to fight than other people in your neighborhood, or were you just that much better at it, or did you enjoy it more? I mean, w- what was that like? Break that down. Um, I feel like there's certain people that are more prone to fight. Like, I feel like it's it, it, it's a little bit uh, societal, but it's also a little bit genetic. I feel like I was naturally like a warrior type person. I can kind of see that in one of my sons. One of my sons, not as much, but my other son, I can see it. I think a little bit, it's, it's a little bit in the DNA, uh, but, you know, the way I grew up in, in, in Albuquerque in general, it's so big in our culture. Um, I don't know what it was, but I always had an obsession with being the toughest guy. Um, I think it had to do with a lot of different elements about my upbringing. Uh, it was actually a way for me to get to protect myself. But it was actually a way, uh, it, was, it was an odd thing because be, I had low self-esteem underneath it all, but I would, I would boost it by being a tough guy, right? I was a good kid, but I would have to fight a lot, but I was ashamed to lose. So I always knew that I had to be uh, meaner, and I always knew that I had to react harder, and I always knew that I had to be more extreme than the next person. And what I mean by that is, the reason why I would always win fights and all the way up, I mean, I never lost a street fight. I lost a couple of MMA fights because I gassed out, but I never lost a street fight because I was so much more aggressive than everybody. I just wanted to almost kill people. Uh, well, we're glad. There was emotional problems going on, obviously, underneath all that, you know. Well, we're glad you didn't kill anybody, but it's funny you bring up the genetic thing because literally the next thing on my list is, there was a show I watched a couple of years ago, and I, f- I forget what channel, one of the cable networks, but uh, Henry Rollins was on it, and they profiled these people, and the question was, are there people who, who are more prone genetically to, to fight and to have that aggression and that anger? And they, you know, they, of course, they tested everybody, and then they, they, you watch the show, and they profiled people, and at the end, they, uh, they, and it turned out that Henry Rollins did have that gene. Um, I don't, I, wow, a little bit, a little bit before you got famous, but it, it was that was definitely something that was on my mind because you do talk a lot about that, and you know, having to fight, like I said, growing up where you did wasn't unique, but you seem to really enjoy it, and 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 obviously be you know really good at it. Now, can you talk a little bit about what made you and your crew of friends? different from gangs and gang members because you were involved in the life you were involved in all the stuff that gangs were involved in but you just weren't in a gang yeah we weren't a we weren't a gang and it was a weird thing we were kind of like i guess you would call it we would call ourselves a crew like this is my crew these are my boys we were involved in criminal activity and doing stuff like that but it was almost like 
Uh, I, I kind of hated gangs, but I didn't really realize we were kind of moving and operating like one. But I really hated gangs. I was always anti-gang because until I started getting into, like, organized, you know, somewhat, and I don't want to say the word organized crime because it wasn't like we were a mafia, nothing like that. But in, into crime as a group, uh, we were really just athletes, jocks, and um, kind of like... Uh, fighters you know not really gangsters but uh we started moving around like gangsters and stuff and you know obviously we got the attention from a few gangs when we moved in when i moved into a couple neighborhoods and had to fight the gangs and had some even shootouts and crazy crazy stuff but uh i wouldn't say we were a gang but i you know definitely we were just there for our period of time like gangs usually go on and the cousins and the and the brothers and the kids do it we were just there for the time we were there as a matter of fact Almost all my crew ended up, they're almost all dead now. Yeah, you know, I, I, I did, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, I, I know people, I know people personally, and, you know, I, I work with people, and I'm thinking of one guy in particular, and I, I as a matter of fact, a, a guy who retired from APD uh, told me years ago when I was a young cop, he said, some of the best cops I've ever known are guys who could have gone either way, and... I, yeah. I know yeah. I know guys, and I, I work with. I'm thinking of one guy in particular who, who told me he grew up in a certain area, and gangs wanted him. They wanted they tried to recruit him, and he had to fight them off. Did you ever deal with that? I mean, given where you were from, you were the perfect fit and the type of person who does get recruited by and oftentimes joins gangs. Did they ever try to recruit? You? I did. I did a couple times. I was I was actually they tried to recruit me into a couple different gangs, a couple of my friends, but I was so. I was so strong, like, personality-wise. Like, I fell into some peer pressure when I wanted to, but when I didn't want to, like, people know, like, don't don't even test them. Like, I had people ask me if I wanted to be part of the neighborhood gang where I grew up, up in uh, up by Del Norte, and I and basically told them, can I cuss? What's can that? I cuss? Yeah. Can I cuss on here? Yeah. I basically told them, fuck you, you fucking, I'm never joining your fucking gang. And then, like, just the way I said it, they never, never asked me again. So I was asked a couple times. But the thing is, even though I wasn't in the gang, uh, and, and I hated gangs, a lot of my friends were from different gangs. Um, so not being really associated with a gang, like me being in a gang, like having a crew, but kind of being the leader of my crew, I was actually cool with a bunch of different gang members from everywhere. Like, even now, like, as a lawyer, like, I know a bunch of the gang members, like, from the street. Uh, so, it was interesting because the fact that I was a crew and one of the gang, I also was able to uh, do more business and uh, deal with more people, right? You know, so it was kind of an interesting place to be. Now, now that makes sense. I, you know, I hadn't really thought about like that. And actually being cool with all the different sides and all the different factions and neighborhoods is probably a pretty positive thing. Now, you've been pretty... You know, on on the TV show, you were very, um, I'll say, proud of the fact that you you know you had the balls and the muscle to actually rob drug dealers. Um, did you yeah. did you ever uh, did you ever have to fight the drug dealers for territory? Oh yeah, we did. Actually, that's what I was talking about. When we moved into a certain uh, part of town uh, when we moved in, and a couple of my friends were actually selling out of the house, and you know, so they knocked on our door and we got some calls and we had to fight. We had to shoot out at the local, uh, at one of the, uh, parks down in the North Valley and, uh, nobody got hit fortunately. But once we had that shootout, about four or five of us shooting with, uh, about four or five of them shooting, really the, we were able to stay in the territory cause they knew, you know, if we're going to, these guys aren't going to move, we have to kill them to get us out. So we were able to stay there and 
So there was nowhere that I couldn't go that I was afraid that they're going to push me out because I always had this thing in my head like, I know there's a lot of crazy people out there, but I don't really care how crazy you are if I'm just as fucking crazy. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. So I would like walk around at night in scary parts of town and you see like scary people and you think that guy's probably crazy. But then I would just like mentally tell myself, I don't give a fuck. I'm just as crazy as him. And then you just tell yourself that and then you can face anything. And when people realize that, they probably don't mess with you. And then they realize like if they do or say something, you are going to flip out and go crazy then that's how you protect yourself, by being crazy. That's how I would protect myself. Like, I knew that, like, I could get hurt or whatever, but once I started thinking that, I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I'll go as crazy as anyone else. And just when anybody said or did anything at all, I would flip out to the highest degree, and therefore nobody's as crazy as me. And so I was, I felt safe anywhere. You, you took that energy, um, you, you know, you played football and you wrestled. You took that energy when you started training at Jackson Wink. Now, how did you, how did you end up getting introduced or, or getting involved with Jackson Wink? For people who don't know, Jackson, you know, Jackson Wink is probably, you know, anybody who watches MMA now knows there's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of famous gyms where, you know, Team Alpha Male and, and AKA and, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah. all that stuff. But Jackson's was probably the, the original Big Jim, and they're right, yeah. right there in downtown Albuquerque. You got involved with them as a teenager. How did that happen? It, it was crazy, actually, how I did it. It was actually was it was a crazy mission to actually find Jacksons because I was uh, I was still in high school. I was in eleventh grade, and I was getting in trouble in school, and you know had basically just got kicked out of school. But I had saw the uh, UFC in 1995 and i was like i gotta learn how to fight like that guy because i love fighting and hoist gracie i was like he's beating up everybody with this style and so i went searching around like you couldn't find brazilian jiu-jitsu in new mexico there was none out here and that's what they were doing but i was like well who does that and so i went to a i went to a couple of judo schools and they were like no nah, this is not really what you're looking for and then i went to an aikido school over off of monta vista and central and the aikido guy said and I brought this energy, and he's all, no, nah, man, you want something a lot more intense than what I'm going to teach you, to be honest. He's all, there's a guy named Greg Jackson over there off San Mateo Manal. Why don't you go talk to that guy? And I literally went into Greg Jackson's, and he had a probably a 500-square-foot building off San Mateo Manal. And there was probably seven or eight guys, Tom Vaughn, Chris Luttrell, Brad Aaronsfield, uh, Chad LeMoyne, seven or eight of us original uh, uh, MMA fighters here in Albuquerque. And I just started going uh, when I was like 17 years old. I would walk over there every day at 12 o'clock and train every single day. And I started fighting with Jackson before they were known and before MMA even got out, uh, you know, it got banned for a, a few years and, you know, it was illegal. Um, but, yeah, I was doing it in the old school days before anybody knew what it was. And so I was like the only young guy in town actually who knew martial arts and who knew jiu-jitsu before everybody, before Diego, before Carlos, before Dodson, before any of them. I was going around town fighting with everybody. And to a degree, I was kind of becoming an asshole because I was, I was highly trained. I was beating the shit out of everybody. <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> It's uh, it's funny. You, I know you did. You know, your your mom or your aunt put you in some traditional traditional karate, traditional striking arts yeah. when you were a kid. You did the wrestling in high school, so obviously you had been exposed to grappling. Um, but you know, you said you started learning Brazilian Jiu Jitsu at, uh, from Greg Jackson. At that point, did you realize? Um, did you feel like you had a more uh, more of a talent for or an interest in uh, grappling versus yeah, striking? I. I definitely had a really good talent for uh, particularly the grappling arts. I mean, I went 
three years in wrestling without losing a match, and I had never wrestled. I just, that aggression that I had was just killer, killer. And uh, in jiu-jitsu, I really was just like, I was really talented, you know. I didn't, and then that's one of my biggest regrets is I didn't make it as far as I wish I I could have, you know, because of the legal issues. But, yeah, I had a real liking and a real talent for jiu-jitsu. I had a real addiction to it and, and to fighting in, in general. I feel like, and I hate to do this, but I feel like there was one point in my life that I could have been one of the best fighters in the world had I had the guidance that I needed. You know, it's it's have- it's funny you mentioned jujitsu as an addiction because I trained for a couple of years down here at Gracie Baja and you're in Las Cruces. And um, I realize being into jujitsu is kind of like being a CrossFitter or a vegan. You got to friggin' tell everybody about it, and that's all you talk about, and you can't stop that's telling true. people. It, but it's true. It's it's definitely an addiction. Now you did get involved, and I've mentioned to you I've been involved with the New Mexico Athletic Commission. I think since 2014, yeah. and um, just recently, last few months, I was appointed. Actually, I'm, I'm I'm a commissioner now, but um, and I don't know when exactly it was that we started sanctioning mixed martial arts. But I know that Sure Dog shows you with a six and two record. You're on Fight Worlds three, four, five, and six. We just had, I think it was twenty six or twenty eight, uh, two weekends ago. Yeah. Um, you fought yeah. on King of the Cage. Uh, you fought on Rage in the Cage. Now I know those are all. Everything I listed probably was in New Mexico. Did you ever fight outside of New Mexico? I, I actually fought in Arizona, and I actually fought in uh, Houston. So I fought in Houston for Greg Jackson when we were really, really young, when I was about 18. And when I was 18, almost 19, before they banned UFC uh, and MMA, I fought in Arizona in one... Uh, in the, in some, so these two earlier events were unsanctioned. It was a little bit different at first. We would, People would have unsanctioned events. So the guy I fought in Arizona was about 25 pounds heavier than me. It was a 30-minute fight. I've heard you talk about that, and I'm tr- I, like I said, you, we're talking the mid-90s, right? We're talking, that would have been probably 95, yeah, 95, 96. Okay, and I think I've probably, you know, I know I've said it a million times, I may have said it on the show here, too. I, rem- I remember the first time I saw a UFC event. It was July 4th, 1994, we were at my buddy Matt's house. Our friend Jimmy shows up with these two VHS cassettes from, from Blockbuster. He's like, hey, guys, I, I found yeah. these, this ultimate fighting challenge or some shit, and we watched it, and I think most of us were kind of hooked. Um, you know, from day one, and, and it's been an amazing ride to see, you know, the evolution uh, of this of it's this sport. Amazing, yeah. uh, and, and and it's yeah. amazing, and you know, we're we're celebrating the thirtieth thirtieth year now. Um, now That's I want to awesome. kind of move along. You've talked about we've talked about how you fought everybody. We talked about how you robbed drug dealers. Uh, you guys did all this stuff. Now the case that yeah. finally got you to the point where you had to make a decision about your life. Um, how did yeah. that all? How did yeah. that all happen? Talk about that case and how it all happened. Well, that case was a case where basically what had happened was I I kicked in the door to somebody who owed me some money, and I took some of their property. Um, I took a pit bull with me, one of my dogs, and he was a pretty vicious pit bull. Uh, During the event, though, he heard me yelling, and he was, like, cowering down the whole time. Anyways, I ended up taking this property, and by the time I get home, I have the police on my phone saying, you know, they're looking for me for, uh, you know, armed robbery, kidnapping, because I moved them to a different room and had them stay in there. All these charges, I was facing about 30 years, and I went on the run. And this was after about probably, oh, good seven, eight, nine years of just being in and out of jail for stupid shit, but at the same time still training in martial arts and trying to get my life straight at the same time. So I was always 
had my foot in two doors. Like, this guy's trying to do good and doing all these positive things, but at the same time, he's fucking up and doing all these stupid things. So eventually, I went on the run, went to Arizona, got extradited back because uh, a girl I was dating out there had basically told the cops that I, where I was at because I had told her that I was on the run, and she got mad because, you know, whatever. And so she told the cops, and so I jump out of a window. I jump into a lake because out in uh, Tempe, Arizona, they have this place called the Lakes. And all the houses are surrounded by, uh, they surround a big lake. And the cops end up catching me, and I come back, and I get out one more time. I do probably about five or six months while I'm waiting for a plea to come down. And they give me one more offer, and I get out while I'm waiting waiting for uh, that offer to come down the pike. And uh, something changed. You know, I was in jail for that last time, and I kind of had a moment where I looked out into the pot, and I just, had a breakdown moment where I didn't, I knew I didn't want to do this anymore. I was in and out for so many years. I was tired of it. I was just broken as a person. You know, I was, I was about close to 30 years old and, you know, the fight career didn't go where I wanted it to go. And I had nothing else. You know, I was the tough guy, but I was like, what else am I? Who else am I? What else can I do? I can't be the tough guy. I'm going to be 40 soon, 50 soon. You know, you can't do that forever. And I made a change. And then one day, you know, I went to CNM, which is our, community college and I started going there and getting decent grades and getting a tutor and realizing, Hey, you know what? I think I can do this and still didn't know what I wanted to do. But, uh, I got a business and an associate in business associates. And then I went to UNM and they let me in. Finally, you know, I had to go in front of the, uh, rehabilitation review board because of my felony. And so I always had to explain my felonies to everybody over and over everywhere I went, I had to explain it. And I always decided, you know what, I'm never going to hide it. I'm never going to hide who I am. I don't want to be that guy, you know, because if you find out I'm a felon and all this shit later and I never told you, that's creepy. But if I just come out in the front and tell you, that's who I am. You know, so I got into UNM. I went to UNM, and I wanted to be like uh, like a CEO or like working corporate in a business. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was still kind of lost. I graduated from Anderson Business School uh, with cum laude, you know, honors, and so I did really well. And I said, you know, I started selling cars, but something inside of me wasn't happy with that. I was making good money, but I was like, I wanted to do more. Um, so I applied for law school and I thought I was going to get in right away. Cause I was kind of cocky. Like with my mind, I was kind of cocky too. Thought I was really smart and I didn't get in. I like bombed the test. I couldn't get in anywhere in the nation. And so I said, shit. So I studied for another six months and I said, let me try it one more time. See what I can do. And I scored just enough to almost get in. And I got in on the wait list. And I was knocked off the wait list at the very end and didn't get in. And I said, shit. And I said, what can I do to get in? So I had to wait a whole other year to reapply. So I applied to this uh, pre-law school in Mississippi at Ole Miss. And I got into that school. And I went over there for eight weeks and learned how to study. And I stayed in the dorms. And I was like just on this mission, almost 30 years old, trying to go back to educate myself, like ex-fell and ex-fighter. I'm over there with a bunch of 20-year-olds, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I graduate that program, and I apply to UNM one more time, and I take the LSAT one more time, the third time. Those are those tests are killer. And I test, I tested high enough, just high enough to get in this time. And I, they called like a couple months later, and I got in right away. So I got into UNM, and I started going to school, and I graduated law school. But Something that's interesting is when I got on probation for that last charge, when I, when I got my sentence suspended, uh, I had to get a job or I had to go to school 
And like I said, I didn't want to sell cars anymore. So I got, I went to school and it was almost like the easy way out at the time. Cause I was like, I didn't know how to work. I was like, a, like almost like a convict type person. Like I was just like, all I knew how to do was train and fight, but I knew I needed to do something with my life. So school was actually the easy way out. You know how a lot of people say, Oh, I don't know how you did school. It's so hard. It's yeah. so hard. But for me, that was a lot easier than, than working. Because I, I hated working. I, I can see that. Now, I was. I guess I was a little bit mistaken. Now, I thought I had learned from watching the show that part of the special pro, kind of probation or halfway house program you're in, it, it didn't take you to California at some point? Oh, yeah, they did. They did. As part of that whole plea deal before I did the deal, actually, yeah, when I got out and I was on probation, I actually went to California for a year, and that's when I trained with the Gracies, and I stayed in a sober house, which is kind of like a halfway house, and did uh, inpatient rehab out there for about uh, what eighteen weeks, and so yeah, part of that whole process when I got out before I made the deal, I went to California and stayed out there for a little over a year. Okay, now that that makes sense, and you did mention, um, you know, when I was looking you up, I, I, I one might assume at the time that you were you were first getting into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and the time that you kind of progressed at it. I know you started with Greg Jackson, but I. You know, the earliest I would ha I would imagine, the early two thousands, the earliest would be would be Gracie Baja. I know they were the first big, the big team that came to New Mexico. Who were you with when were you at the at the the main camp, the main Gracie Academy in Torrance? Or you're exactly right. Yeah, I was actually in Torrance with Hinner and Hidon, and uh, Hickson was teaching there, and Hoist was there, and the old man. Yeah, I was in Torrance. Yep. Okay. Now, where do you do, do, do you know T City, the fighter T City? He's he's actually my favorite MMA fighter. He he was when I was there. He was like he was like 15 years old training with Hinner and Hoist, and I would always watch him. I never trained with him because he was still a little kid. But they always told me like, "This is our guy. This is our main guy." And he was always training with Hinner and Hoist. He, you know, you guys have somewhat of a similar background. He, you know, he grew up pretty damn rough. Um, I remember him saying his dad taught him how to run zigzags when he thought someone was trying to shoot at you. Um, oh wow, yeah, yeah. But um, okay, so now where do you roll now? If you if you roll, are you affiliated with anybody in New Mexico? Where do you go to get your get yeah, your fix? Yes, still affiliated with Gracie Baja. Still go down there and train with Tusa and Barata, you know, when I can. And uh, right now, I'm also affiliated with Tom Bond, and I'm I'm going to be starting a program over there. And I have my kids training over there as well. My kids do boxing over there at FIT. You, your kids are over there at FIT? Yeah, my kids are at FIT. They're doing boxing right now, and then they do wrestling uh, with uh, with uh, uh, Wolfpack. Okay, you know, it was, it's so funny because when I when I watched that, I didn't know what your connection was to the community. I knew you were a fighter, but on on the screen comes Tom Vaughn, and of course, with my years as a deputy inspector, I've crossed paths with Tom, and you know, I know John Judy, yeah, actually, yeah. The, the wrestling coach is the one that I know the best, but um, it was kind of surprising, like, hey, I know that guy, uh, and of course, I just saw him two weeks ago, they put on their, you know, their fight world, but were there any concerns, you talk about coming back, and not just coming back to your hometown, which can be hard enough when you're trying to go on the straight and narrow um, but you know, you and them, and I'm not 100% like the best on where the good and bad areas of, of Albuquerque are, if there is a good area. Um, but I know that that university area can be pretty shady. Were there any concerns about, you know, going to school back home and, and kind of running into some of those old people and having to tell them, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not living that. I'm not about that anymore. I'm not about that life. Was that an issue for you? 
Yeah, that was an issue for a long time. That was something I had to get over. That was something I had to become strong at. That was something I had to learn how to say no to those people, how to eventually, you know, at first I would get angry with them. You know, like, don't fucking call me. Like, stop asking me to go to parties. Stop telling me what happened last night because you know what makes me want to go out. Like, I would literally have to tell my friends and my homies shit like that. I lost a few friends. A few of them stayed. You know, we laugh about it still. But after after years and years of people realizing, like, Oak's not going to fuck around and go to those parties, do all that shit anymore, I got the respect from those people. But, yeah, there was a long process of that being a problem where I would, you know, be tempted to go back towards those old places or things. Uh, so I had to make a conscious decision to literally tell people to not talk to me about that stuff. And they, you know, they respected me. I'm glad that you're able to do that. You talked about going before some sort of uh, committee or something when you were applying to school and having to talk about being a convicted felon. Now, I was actually really surprised. I didn't know that you could get admitted to the bar uh, having been a convicted felon. Was that a concern for you? And what was that process like? Well, that was interesting, too, because, um, you know, it's, it's a case-by-case basis, and there's most people who have felonies who try it aren't aren't admitted they aren't they they don't make it so i went to law school got all my loans and i just based it on i guess i based it on faith in god and i i just knew that if i did the right thing that i knew uh, for some reason i feel like i know people's hearts in a way and i feel like people want to forgive so i felt like if i could do this i can get these people to see that I'm not that bad of a person that I it, I can be a lawyer and that I deserve it even if I messed up. So it was it was tough because you know going through the process after I passed the bar, I still didn't know if I was going to become a lawyer for six months. I had to hire a lawyer uh, to go to a bunch of meetings and you know uh, to explain myself over and over, and it was it was pretty hard. But uh, I just based it in faith. Well, you did it, and something I really want to look forward to asking you about, and, and I'm glad I've gotten to this now. You've been really clear, for obvious reasons, um, first you were a criminal, now you're a criminal defense attorney, you've been really clear about not talking to the cops. Um, are there any circumstances under which you would tell a client to go ahead and talk? Well, you know, that's that's my personal me. I've never talked to the cops. I don't I don't do that. I don't. I grew up that way. Don't snitch. Don't tattletale. Don't talk to the cops. I grew up in the game, this and that. So I have that. That's part of my moral code. But as far as my clients, um, there's certain clients that have that same code as me. But me as an attorney, um, you know, if a client gets an offer and the state says, "Hey, your client," uh, if your client gives us some information, I'll present that to my client, and uh, you know, it's actually up to the client, right? Because it's really up to the client. So as a lawyer, it's kind of different. Um, but I, but the clients, you know, certain clients, it depends who they are, have that same moral code that I do. They say, no, I'm never going to say anything. And that's it. Conversation over. But you got other ones, you know, for certain reasons, right? They are going to talk to the cops because, you know, I've never been in those situations, but I can see situations where some of them have talked to the cops and it is probably the best thing for them to do in their circumstance. Well, I can tell you, I know from experience, and, you know, I was, believe it or not, I, as for about 20 years I was a libertarian, and people could never understand how you could be a libertarian and be a cop, but I, I respect <laughs> the Constitution, and I respect, obviously, the, 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 the philosophy of, if you're being accused of something, don't talk to the cops. 
But I can yeah, tell yeah. you from experience, and it's I'm not saying it's happened a bunch of times, but there are a handful of times that you know that I can think of off the top of my head where, you know, if all goes well and if a, if, a, if an investigation goes the way it's supposed to, and I'm doing air quotes, the suspect is the last person I'm talking to. Because that way, I've done all my investigation. Yeah. I've gotten everybody else's yeah. story. I've collected all the evidence. And I can tell when you're bullshitting me. Um, I, I can tell when you're, and sometimes I'll tell them that, look, I know the answers to 85% of the questions I'm going to ask you. I'm not going to tell you yeah. which ones they are. But I do know there have been cases where I, there, one case comes to mind where I had talked to everybody. And I looked at all of the evidence. And, I, and the, this suspect was looking at a couple of felonies. And I said, do you want to talk to me? I've heard everybody else's story. Let's hear yours. And the guy was like, yeah, I'll talk to you. So he gave me a story, and he connected just enough dots that instead of catching, you know, three or four felonies, he caught two misdemeanors, you know, and yeah, and, you know. And, and that yeah. happens. And, and my selling point always is when I ask people if they want to talk to me is, I've heard everybody else's side of the story. Hey, do you want to give me yours? Um, so well, here's the thing. And there's, there's a couple different concepts, like, like as far as, okay, so have I ever told on anybody with the cops? No. But I have I ever been honest with the cops? Yeah. yeah. I've had drugs on me before. I've had a quarter pound of weed on me before. And the cops asked, do you have any drugs? And I told them, yeah, I have it. It's right over there. And they've let me go off of it. So I have a different theory about sometimes being honest with cops. As a lawyer, I say, you know, my advice is don't talk to cops. But as a person, personal experience, I have been honest with cops at times. And they've let me go off a bunch of stuff. But as a lawyer, I just can't advise to do that. But in my personal experience, I know that honesty can help. Of course. Now, I uh, something that I have learned, and of course, I've been doing this almost 25 years, and usually, and I can say right now, probably our best defense attorneys in town are guys who started off as prosecutors and guys who prosecuted my cases, um, you know, when I was a much younger cop. And you develop relationships with people. The guy's name was Mark. I don't know that I don't know that they ever showed his last name, but you know, it was the two of you throughout your episode were talking and he's from the same part of town you are. And so he was able to yeah. give perspective about what it's like. And he was coincidentally the DA who gave you that 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 yeah, last yeah. chance, that last chance to turn yeah. your life around. Um one quick question, is he still with the DA's office up there? He's actually not with the DA's. He's actually a criminal defense attorney now. He has his own <laughs> private practice and He's doing defense. <laughs> okay, now now the, the the second part of that is what kind of relationship do you have with Albuquerque area law enforcement and the district attorney's office? Well, you know, I think it's uh, it's not bad. You know, I don't have a bad relationship anymore. Uh, you know, I think I I think the DA's office knows that I'm ready to ready to battle at any time and take it to trial, so they know they can't back me down. But I think I have a good working relationship with a lot of the, the uh, ADAs and the DA's office. Uh, you know, I think I've been able to earn a good reputation as somebody who advocates hard. So with that, and, and, I, and I'm respectful to them. So I think I have a good relationship with them to where it can benefit my clients. And I think my history in Albuquerque uh, makes it a cool and interesting history with the police officers and the police agencies because I still know a bunch of them. As a matter of fact, what's also interesting, I know a bunch of police and correctional everywhere because of my martial arts. So everywhere I go, I know police. Well, and like I said, I mean, the world's not as big a place as it used to be in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, the state, the the city, you know, not not necessarily big. You know, someone, if your only experience, you know, I remember growing up as a kid watching L.A. Law, and you would watch the two sides just fight and fight and fight. You know, and as soon as they went to recess, they're talking like calm people, and I would always get a kick out of that and didn't realize until I grew up that that's, that's how it is. 
you know, and, and yeah. I know, like I told you, some of the best criminal defense attorneys are guys that I, 20 years ago, were prosecuting my cases at the DA's office. And yeah. one of the good things, I, 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 I don't believe in being phony at all, but I, I do tell a lot of these young guys, develop good relationships with the defense bar because it can work in your favor. I can't yeah. tell you how many times I can call up a defense attorney and work out a surrender, you know. Oh yeah. Or if oh, yeah. I can yeah, if yeah. I can get them, you know, sometimes they will offer up their clients, hey, my client wants to talk or you know, it it makes a lot of sense and I have I know this from experience. It makes a lot of sense to build bridges and and build, you know, good relationships. I mean, you know, some of my best drinking buddies are defense attorneys, to be honest with you. Um <laughs> now yeah, I want to yeah, talk yeah. about I want to talk about uh something that's been a big issue here in New Mexico. I believe it was in 2020 when the legislature passed bond reform. Uh for, yeah, for yeah. people, for the listeners who don't know, prior to the bond reform, there was a schedule, and there are five levels, uh, six levels of crime here in New Mexico: petty misdemeanor, misdemeanor, fourth, third, second, and first degree felonies. And when you got booked on a charge, or however many charges there were, there was a set bond for that level of crime. And if right. someone to to get out as soon as you were processed, somebody could either post up the cash amount, or they could post ten percent to a bail bondsman who post the rest, and and they would never get their ten percent back. In, in 2020, they passed, you know, if you get arrested today and you get booked into the jail at 3 p.m., your ass is staying there until 1 o'clock the next day when they do in-jail arraignments. There is no more bonding out. Um, and right. to, to right. hold people, the state now has to file a motion for pretrial detention. And to, right. to, to, right. to get that granted, of course, they would have to prove, number one, that the person letting them out would be a danger to society and there are no conditions of release under which the person wouldn't be a danger to society. And if you can't prove that, you, you, the, the state would try to prove that, that the, the person is a, a flight risk. That's the right. background. Um, what is your, what's your opinion just on bond reform? Do you think it went too far? Do you think it has, it's more fair? Just kind of speak on that. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable means to try to looking at it objectively not as a criminal defense attorney. It's a reasonable means, I think, to try to protect the community uh, from people who might be dangerous, uh, even if they could possibly afford to get out, right? Because with the old system, right, you could be super dangerous, but if you could afford it, you get out and you're back on the streets. So it was becoming a problem, right, with people, you know, bondsmen, you know, uh, letting these people get out, you know, giving them the leverage to get out, people get out. Do I think it's... uh, fair and inside uh, in line with what the Constitution uh, asks us to do? No, I don't. Everybody's supposed to have a bond and an opportunity to get out, and that's what the Constitution, the founders wanted. Um, now, do I think it's, in my experience of, of doing these, I do probably two or three of these a week. Uh, as a criminal defense attorney, I kind of wish it went back to how it was. However, I think it is unfair for a lot of people who do get held in uh, because I don't know. I just don't like the process because, you know, one judge might have let one person out based on dangerousness or reliability of the evidence, and you go to another judge the next day, and they, they it's a totally different decision. So it's not reliable in who they're keeping in. Yeah, well, I mean, you can say that basically about anything. There are different judges ruling on different things in different courtrooms on, on in not, not just bond, bond issues, That's but on true. everything else. That's true. I, I will say that this is kind of my take, and, and if you haven't realized it already, if, I know I've told you a little bit about my show and my, you know, my motivation for, for doing it. Um, I don't think like most cops, and I happen to believe that the, the, the straight cash bail system um, 
like a lot of other things in our society, criminalized poverty. Because like you said, you know, if yeah, you and, if yeah, you and yeah, I commit true. the same violent crime, but you have money to bond out and I don't, that doesn't make you any less of a violent or dangerous person or a danger to society. <clears throat> now, true. now the thing is, what, what people miss is that the state always had the ability to try, even if you had the ability to post bond, even if you did post it right away, they could still go to court and try to get it revoked or increased based on them making an argument that you know that you were dangerous uh, or they you were a, yeah. a yeah. flight risk. And the thing that people forget is that it's this whole innocent until proven guilty thing. But look, I have never ever. I know I don't think any cop in the world has ever arrested somebody or applied for a you know filed a case or applied for a cert or for an arrest warrant and didn't believe one hundred percent their heart and hearts so that person was guilty of that crime. But yeah. again, yeah. You, you, cops, you know, we can't be the judge, jury, and jailer. That's how they do it in those you know, places that nobody wants to live, in, in countries like Somalia or whatever. Um, I, I, I like the idea of bond reform. I think it swung a little bit too far. I, I'd like to see it come back the other way. We're running a little short on time. I do, we may have kind of, you may have talked about this a little bit when we talked about whether or not you would tell people to talk, but you, know, you have an unbelievably unique perspective um, and life experience that you bring to your job as a criminal defense attorney. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more if you ha if you feel like you haven't already enough? Can you talk a little bit about how your past influences the way you practice criminal defense? Sure. Yeah, I can. Um, I bring my whole life into it. You know, it's, it is interesting because I definitely have a different perspective than other attorneys. Um, I really, really, really believe in rehabilitation and reform and you know, just admitting when we make mistakes, you know, I know everybody has a right to go to trial and I'm never afraid to take my clients' cases to trial, but I bring in my philosophies and, you know, if somebody wants to go to trial, we go to trial and I haven't lost a trial yet, tell you the truth, but I, uh, I believe in redemption. I believe in accountability as a person. I believe everybody, I believe in God, and I believe everybody has an opportunity to, to choose whether or not they're going to take accountability for what they might or might not have done. And I also believe that everybody can redeem themselves. But at the same time that I believe in all those things, one thing that I, that I pride myself on is because of these experiences, when somebody walks through the door of my law firm, and I can't say it about every attorney, but I can say I've dealt with it with a few attorneys that I've seen firsthand, I don't judge people. I'm not going to judge you if you, whatever you do, because I've been in a place to where I know how it is to at least feel like you have to do certain things. I'm not going to sit here and say that I had to live the life I did because I know I didn't, but I know at the time I felt like that was the best life. And that right there is a trap that's hard to get out of. So I bring in my life experience to people and I love to mentor people, counsel people, and one thing that I won't do with people is I won't bullshit them, you know. So I think I think that perspective has gone a long way with me in, 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 in my business as far as people wanting to use me as an attorney because, you know, I've only been an attorney going on six years. But ever since when I very first started, people wanted to come to me and I would tell them, I say, you know, you're hiring me right now for, let's say, a murder charge. I've only been an attorney for three or four years. You know that, right? And they say, yeah. I say, well, why would you hire me? And I, I tell people, why would you hire me over, over a guy who's been doing it 20 years? Well, Mr. Oki, because you've been there, and I know you understand how I feel and what I'm going through. And I say, all right, well, let's do it. And that's the truth. 
Well, six years and counting, uh, the black belt lawyer, Adam Oki, has been my guest today on the Square Peg podcast. Uh, you know, I've been telling you I've been really looking forward to this, and this interview has not, has not let me down at all. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have enjoyed my interview with the black belt lawyer, Adam Oki, out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, as much as I have. Uh, we'll see you uh, again. We're not doing seasons anymore, but we hope to bring you an episode uh, somewhere around the second week of every month from here on out. Uh, this is your host, Andrew Lawrence. Thank you for joining us.